talking and it don't make sense Tell me what it's all about The truth is stranger the closer you get To the who, what, where, when, how Absurd is the word, guess what I heard Absurd is the word, guess what I heard Guess what I heard Guess what I heard Hey guys, this is Know What I Heard. I'm Jamie, and this episode I was joined by my good friend and scientist Rich McGee in another episode of what I like to call Getting Rich on Science. And this episode we talked about alien life. Rich explains some of the cool discoveries on Venus and Mars and some of the methods that scientists are using to detect life on other planets. So it was really interesting. I hope that you guys enjoy it. And at the end of the episode, we actually touch on a couple previous episodes that we did. There was an update on the episode that we did about um, scientific discoveries in medicine and a question that we had regarding the LSD episode. So listen for those as well. Hope you guys enjoy. Here we go. Let's do this, man. All right. Aliens. Yes. Woo! Aliens. What does alien life mean to you? Oh my gosh. Um, Not a whole lot. It's kind of one of those things that I don't put a lot of thought into. (laughs) So it's it's just something that like, I, I don't know. I, I don't really know what I feel about it, to be honest. I don't know if I believe that they're aliens. I don't know if I don't believe that they're aliens. I'm just kind of like, meh, whatever. Yeah, I'm a huge X-Files fan, so um, I definitely believe. Uh, I think it's important just to start out with a definition of what we're talking about. Um, so I'm going to switch terminology just slightly, but this basically applies to aliens. So astrobiology, which is formerly known as exobiology, is a field concerned with the origin, distribution, and evolution of life in the universe. Um, it does, in fact, include the study of life here on Earth, but it's particularly interested on what life would look like on places that are not Earth. So why do I want to talk about that now? I think is the next question. A couple of months ago, uh, a paper was published claiming to have found a molecule indicating the possibility of life on Venus, which is like really out of left field. Uh, But it's incredibly intriguing. So what in the world is going on on Venus? Uh, You may have seen some headlines talking about possible life found on Venus, but I think we should dig deeper into the paper before uh, planning a gap year to Venus to meet the locals and getting familiar with their cuisine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the first, which everybody's going to be really interested in, if this is one of those podcasts that puts people to sleep, uh, let's talk about data collection. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Everybody's favorite. favorite topic. There is a technique in chemistry called interferometry that looks at the interference on different wavelengths of light and can figure out with some caveats what chemicals are present in the medium through which the light passed through. So think of it like knowing that a purple paint could have been made with a blue and red paint. That's very much oversimplified, and I'm sure there's some chemists out there that are screaming into the void. But this dumbass appreciates it. (laughs) That's my best analogy. Sorry, folks. 
So what they did was they used the James Clerk Maxwell Telescope in Hawaii to collect light from Venus to analyze it for various chemicals. So basically, the researchers were looking through this data to see if they could detect phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus, which leads to the next question, why phosphine? Exactly. Phosphine is a molecule produced by life here on Earth under certain conditions. The important thing to know is that on rocky planets, phosphine does not have a significant non-biological source. Venus, while very different from Earth in some ways, is a rocky planet and should not have significant phosphine uh, produced from non-biological sources. The next important thing is that phosphine breaks down quickly in Venus's atmosphere, meaning that if we find significant levels of phosphine, a possible explanation could be life. Okay. Here's the first major caveat. There could be some non-biological processes that we're unaware of on Venus that are producing phosphine. Some chemists have gone through a laundry list of these different kinds of reactions, um, and they've ruled out most of them. That doesn't mean that we eliminated all of those possibilities, but we're starting to scrape the bottom of the barrel when it comes to non-biological explanations. So, did they find significant levels of phosphine on Venus? I don't know. They did. <laughs> and they found it at levels that we'd expect if there was life on Venus. The problem is there was a bit of a problem with the math. So, some other researchers went through their math and published a follow-up paper, and there is another chemical in the atmosphere called sulfur dioxide that could kind of look like phosphine if your math isn't spot on. When the new group corrected the math of the previous group, the levels of phosphine detected were not statistically robust enough to claim the levels that had been reported in the paper. So, at the end of the day, there might be higher levels of phosphine on Venus, but the current data points to no. So, this paper made its way all around Facebook, and Reddit, and Twitter, and everybody's super excited about it. Now, why would that be if, like, oh, okay, whatever, we found life on a planet that can harbor life, right? What do you know about the conditions on Venus? Well, in preparation for this episode, I actually looked up to see what it was like. And basically what I could find was that it's kind of like a hotter, hazier version of Earth. <laughs> like, And that the atmosphere is really heavy so if if we were to go there it would just feel like we were underwater basically that's that's what i got yeah no it's that's uh that's pretty accurate um it's got very high co2 levels uh which is why it's so hot and hot doesn't quite do it justice uh it's a very spicy 460 degrees celsius Ooh. to put that in perspective that's 100 degrees hotter than the melting temperature of lead so real fucking hot <laughs> Well, I'm always cold, so I think I'd be fine. <laughs> You'd like it there, yeah. That's definitely <laughs> going to be your vacation house. Um, also, the atmosphere on Venus is very, very acidic. So acidic that most of life here on Earth, even if it were cool enough there on Venus, would not survive on Venus. So the caveat, second big caveat, the further you go up in the atmosphere, the cooler it gets. So if we set aside the acidity part of it, there's actually a particular section of the atmosphere that is similar to the temperatures here on Earth. As far as we can tell, any life that we find on Venus would have to be in this section of the atmosphere. Indeed, we actually have visual surveys of the Venusian atmosphere where we find dark streaks that aren't accounted for by any other components known in the atmosphere. Following up on that research, other people found that these dark streaks are caused by very, very small particles right around the size of bacteria which is pretty cool. And these streaks are actually found in this cooler temperature region. So given that we can actually detect microbes in our own atmosphere using this technology, and we've 
use the similar techniques on Venus, um, it's actually looking more and more likely there's something in the atmosphere around the size of bacteria floating around the atmosphere of Venus, right? Well, goddamn. But we have to send another mission there to actually figure out what's going on because we don't know. We've actually got to pick them up and look at them. That sounds fun. Let's do it. Yeah. So that's the Venus paper. And that's where we're at with Venus. And I don't think there's another mission plan for another like six years or so. So we're probably not going to get any real good information on that. I actually, there might be one orbiter going around, but it's for something different. And I think that's in two years. But it's not the first time we've had false starts when it comes to finding alien life. And this is the history, essentially, of exobiology. Or, sorry, astrobiology is what it's called now. Uh, do you think that there's life on Mars? I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me either way. I'm kind of indifferent. Like, I think it would be cool as shit if there was. Like, there's got to be life out there somewhere. But I specifically Mars, I don't know. Do you? I think that at the very least, there used to be life on Mars. Okay. And there's good reasons to think of that. Um, one, Mars used to have a lot more water and a much uh, thicker atmosphere than it does now. Two, it, um, as far as I remember, it cooled down faster than Earth did which means that it would have had a little bit of a head start uh, over Earth. Gotcha. Three, there's this thing called panspermia, which we'll talk about a little bit later. It leads me to believe that uh, if we didn't get life from Mars, we may have sent life to Mars. And oh. that's uh, definitely going to be a uh, subject of discussion later on. Sweet. So that being said, we did discover some canals on Mars. Um, actually, in 1877, an astronomer named Giovanni Schiaparelli, uh, which is my worst Italian accent that I can do, but I really tried. <laughs> so it was good. So some astronomers made some very detailed maps of these canals that they thought that they were seeing on Mars. And they even named a lot of them. As time went on, it was speculated that these were irrigation canals like you would find here on Earth, i.e. there was intelligent life irrigating their crops on Mars, which would be pretty freaking cool, right? Yeah. The problem <laughs> is that nobody was coming up with the same maps. So normally when people like map a region, you know, there might be one or two errors. They were coming up with wildly different maps. And as telescopes got better and better, it became clear that some astronomers were just seeing canals that just weren't there. One theory is that the astronomers were seeing dark spots because of veins in their retina, which means they were essentially mapping their own eyeballs <laughs> while they were looking through this cool. telescope. Which is okay. a different cool kind of discovery, right? Just right. completely wrong that there's no canals on Mars. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's funny. no canals on Mars, unfortunately. Um, but if we jump forward about 100 years, we find possible fossilized life in a Martian meteorite in 1996, which was announced by Bill Clinton. I find this fascinating because I have zero memory of this and I love this stuff. But do you remember Bill Clinton announcing this back in 96 or, like, finding out about it later? No. It's weird, right? Yes. Watch the video. <laughs> yeah, I watched I watched the video, and I know what you're talking about. And I was – it was so bizarre because it just was, like, just vague, and there wasn't a whole lot of info provided, really. It was just kind of like, cool, we found a rock. Uh, we're going to put a lot of money into something. And I don't know. It just was very – very strange. Yeah. Watching that video was like watching a video from an alternate universe where it was just like, hold on, that didn't happen here, though. <laughs> right. It's like, hey, yeah, we've got this meteorite and, um, you know, we've got these things that we're looking at in it. And uh, and 
it's referencing this meteorite that was found that had possible fossilized microbes in it. So what about this meteorite, right? We know that it came from Mars. Um, we know this because uh, based on its composition, we know that it's not something that would come out of Earth because each planet has a different ratio of elements in it, right? Uh, we know that the chemical composition of a rock that came from Earth is going to be different from the chemical composition that came from a rock from Mars. Uh, and another way that we know this is that the isotopes that we find in Earth rocks are different from the isotopes found in Mars rocks. So gotcha. okay. got this meteorite. It landed here on Earth. We know that it came from Mars. And basically, they found stuff that looked like fossilized bacteria. In the years since then, a number of papers have been published showing that a biotic origin could be likely, but there's been a lot of back and forth on this over the years. And at this point, we're not going to know whether or not it was actually microbes until we go to Mars and collect some rocks, analyze them, and say, oh, wait, 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 here's some dormant microbial life. <laughs> and so, yeah, and we've also found other meteorites since then that have different features that look like microbes, one of which includes carbon-rich spheroids, um, which would be larger life. Uh, in a sense, because most bacteria are actually rod-shaped. Okay. So, yeah, we don't exactly know what that is at this point, but a lot of people are leaning towards a biotic origin, and I'm cl inclined to think that there at least used to be life on Mars. Just to touch back on the Bill Clinton thing, because mm -hmm. in the video he's kind of like, oh, shit, this is exciting, you know, yep. and then it's like, we're going to put all this money into ex exploring this, and you're like, did anything ever... Like, what came of the Mars exploration after that? Do you know? So, like it actually, there were some beneficial things, and I, I can't, you know, this is one of those, um, you can't do a randomized controlled trial in history, but it looks like that actually uh, got a lot of funding for Mars missions. So, Curiosity and Discovery, the rovers um, that have been scooting around Mars, at least one of which I'm pretty sure has shut down now. And there's a couple of more uh, Mars rovers that are uh, going to be landing there. Uh, the Chinese tried to land one last year, I believe. So, I mean, a lot of people are, are actually, you know, more interested in it now. And that's just in the last, what, 24 years? Mm -hmm. You know, I, th I think good stuff has come out of it, but I can't be positive that it was because of this discovery. But it was definitely heavily talked about at the time. Okay. Yeah, I was just curious. Yeah. So, have you heard about methane on Mars? A, a little bit. Just that it, it might indicate that there's life, right? Yes. But I haven't really, like, dived too much deeper than that um have you heard about cow farts in the green new deal yes yes okay yes 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 i have that i have heard of that yes farts are my favorite yes <laughs> so <laughs> we'll, we'll slide on past like the perception of what the green new deal is i'm not going to argue political policy and all that bs but uh methane is a main component of cow farts right mm -hmm. it's actually not just cow farts though it's a lot of different life here on earth they produce methane as an alternative uh, metabolite while they're uh, getting energy from their energy sources, right? While they're eating stuff. So why this is interesting when it comes to Mars is that, so on the surface of Mars, methane degrades very quickly and would need to be replenished by some process to be found at the levels that we see it at. Even more interesting is that the levels of methane on Mars have seasonal variation, which would be very weird to see if it was a geological process rather than a biological one. It's not impossible, but it's kind of weird. And alternative products of respiration have been found all over Earth, 
So it makes sense that we'd see different byproducts of respiration out in the wider universe if life exists out in the wider universe. Okay. Europa is one of the moons of Jupiter. And although it's extremely cold on the surface, it's thought that underneath a very, very thick layer of ice, Europa has a liquid ocean. Really? Based on planet Earth, that's a thing that we like when it comes to fostering the development of life. What's even cooler is it looks like Europa has regular events where it spits out a plume of water from its probable deep oceans into space. Meaning that we could send a probe out to Jupiter, circle around Europa a few times, and collect the space mist, and then analyze it for actual living life without ever landing on the surface of the planet. That's cool. Super cool. A NASA program known as Europa Clipper is set to launch in 2024, and it may include this experiment as part of its experimental payload. I'm really, really excited about that. Like, Europa is like where pretty much every biochemist is turning their eye because, sure, life could take on a million different kinds of forms and use a million different kinds of chemistry, but we know it works with carbon and water. And Europa has got that. I really, really, really can't wait to see that one. That's awesome. So exactly how likely is it that we find life out there? Because, like, space is super empty. Right. It is so unbelievably empty that, like, how could it even be possible that life could be found out there, you know, on some rocky hell on Earth, right? Like, just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The thing is, everywhere we look in the universe, we keep finding molecules that we'd expect to see if life were to happen. I'm not just talking about simple carbon molecules like methane which is actually a very simple molecule. It's a carbon and four uh, hydrogens, right? But fundamental building blocks we found all over the universe. Um, we found sugars, amino acids, alcohols, and some of these we know for a fact came from non-biological origins. And the reason that we know that is that we found them in racemic 50-50 amounts. Basically what that means, racemic, there's a handedness to certain kinds of molecules where one is a left-handed version, one is a right-handed version. In biology, we prefer one hand over the other. Okay. Um, so when you see biological life here on Earth, you see a preponderance of one-handed version of this molecule. These two different things, they're called enantiomers, one left-hand enantiomer, one right-handed enantiomer. Um, we see them sometimes in space in 50-50 amounts. That's cool because that means that we have building blocks of either-handed version out there ready to go. When we see them in a non-racemic mix... We have a high probability attitude that it came from a biological source. And so we're going to see more and more projects looking to find non-racemic percentages of these molecules. For example, ribose is a very important molecule that we actually do find out in space. Why it's important? When it's coupled with a nucleic acid, it becomes RNA, a.k.a. ribonucleic acid. Hmm. RNA is used by some life here on Earth uh, as genetic code and enzymes. Humans use RNA all the time for various reasons, including as enzymes. We use them to translate DNA into proteins. We use them uh, when we use mRNA, aka messenger RNA. Uh, we take our genetic code, we make mRNA, and then we make proteins off of that mRNA. So we find ribose out there in the universe all the time, and we find very, very big clouds of it. So the basic building blocks are out there. Yeah, that's cool. So the primary molecular tools that we use here on Earth are proteins, and they're not just for bodybuilding. <laughs> have we found proteins in space? Uh, the answer is yes. We have found proteins that came from space. 
which is really super duper 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 cool. Researchers from Harvard and a couple of biotech companies found complete proteins inside of a meteorite, and they were able to confirm the components of these proteins were of extraterrestrial origin. Uh, Remember how we talked about isotopes could help us identify Mm -hmm. which planet things came from? Same thing happened here. This protein, which we know is extraterrestrial, they ended up calling hemolithin, um, and it has a proposed function of being able to absorb photons and split water. It could have formed without biological processes, but I'm inclined to believe that it came from light, <laughs> and we just haven't found <laughs> where it came from yet. So, ready to get to the bonus hmm. section? Yeah. This is all just straight nerd shit, so. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, we already kind of talked about if you think that there's alien life out there. There has to be. I have a very high confidence that there's life out there, not from Earth. And in biochemistry, like, people are always looking for different ways in which life can 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 work, right? So instead of mm-hmm. using a carbon backbone for life, maybe a silicone backbone, because it also has a propensity to form four different bonds, just like carbon, right? Less likely because it is less common, but it's one of those things that's like, oh, it could definitely work. Because of that, actually, you can think of ways that life could exist in even more extreme environments than we have here on Earth. For example, we have life here on Earth that lives inside of rocks far below the surface of the ocean floor. So the very bottom of the ocean, we go three kilometers down, which is nearly two miles below the ocean. We find these extremophiles uh, that we call endoliths. Endolith meaning literally inside of rock. Some of these can survive temperatures above the temperature of boiling water. Some of them can survive below freezing temperatures. I mean, that's hmm. how extreme that we can get. And wow. they have water inside of them. So <laughs> you got to wonder how exactly that works, right? <laughs> Yeah. Some of that biophysics is still under investigation, and we're still trying to figure out exactly how that works. So these endoliths are primarily being used as a model for life that we might find out in the wider universe. Some of them actually eat rocks and minerals rather than organic matter. They don't photosynthesize. They don't uh, metabolize otherwise processed plants or, or meat or whatever, right? Uh, some of them do chemosynthesis, where they're literally using chemicals as their energy source. Under these very extreme conditions, some of them have incredibly slow metabolisms, which is very important for a future topic. Slow meaning they reproduce on timescales of 100 years to 10,000 years. Damn. And to put that in perspective, E. coli in the laboratory reproduces every 20 minutes. So <laughs> these are... Microbial organisms reproducing at a slower rate than humans, but are the size of E. coli. Hmm. That's incredibly slow in terms of metabolism. So the question is, what are they eating inside of these rocks, right? Trace amounts of iron, potassium, sulfur, sometimes carbon, which is primarily what we eat, right? Sometimes they're eating their fellow endoliths. So they see these other Yum. home skillets living in the rock and they're like, mm-hmm. yeah, but Bob over there looks really tasty. Yeah, I'm just going to crunch on him a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, their metabolism is just so slow that they spend a significant chunk of their energy repairing damage from cosmic rays. That's a whole different chemistry thing. But the fact of the matter is, is kilometers under rock, they're getting hit by just enough cosmic rays that constitutes a significant chunk of their energy expenditure. Humans, by comparison, you would be hard to calculate how much energy we spend on it. It is so little of our energy expenditure. And we're on the surface. Hmm. We're getting hit by cosmic rays all the time. Right. It's very hard to measure for us. They're spending a significant chunk of energy just repairing NASA. That is how slow 
they do. Wow, that's nuts. What about organisms that breathe something other than CO2, like plants, or oxygen, like animals? We've also found those. We have a category of organisms called lithotrophs, aka rock eaters, which we did kind of just mention, right? Some of these breathe sulfur compounds rather than oxygen. So when we look out there in the wider universe and we find exoplanets that have a very uh, high sulfur content in their atmosphere, it is not necessarily that life wouldn't exist there because life here on Earth breathes sulfur. And so we know they can already exist in that kind of environment, right? And so we found these in Canada in a place called Kid Mine, 2.4 kilometers below the surface, just chewing away at the rock, just very, very yeah. slowly. And they found it with some of the oldest known water on Earth, looking at the isotopes on what was there, right? Hmm. We can figure out how old this water is. And so these are some of the oldest organisms on Earth, some of which we believe can live up to a million years old. Wow. But we don't know is the thing, right? We need to do more research and we need to do longer term studies. So these are actually some of the earliest known organisms, right? Which you would expect finding in some of the oldest water on Earth. This metabolism we found in organisms that we can date back to about 3.5 billion years ago, which means that like they still keep chugging along year after year after year after year. The dinosaurs, they came and they went, right? Like we had this entire period where bugs were the size of horses, you know, that came and went. These organisms are still going, which means they can survive extreme changes in environment, which is very important when we actually talk about panspermia. My favorite. <laughs> love it. I love it so much. So panspermia is a theory that basically proposes an idea of being able to spread life from planet to planet, or in some cases, solar system to solar system. Okay. So we talked about the meteorite from Mars and the fact that it looked like it had fossilized microbes in it, right? Mm -hmm. It's true that all of the organisms in that meteorite were fossilized when they hit Earth, meaning we could have had some Martian visitors when that meteorite hit Earth. And since we know that there are a lot of different microbial organisms here on Earth that can survive just eating a rock for thousands of years, we know that actually they could make the trip on a rock from Mars to Earth or vice versa. Huh. And that's basically what panspermia is, right? Is, you know, you, you have a, you know, a bigger meteor hit some planet that has life and it launches a bunch of rocks off into space and they cruise around the solar system for some time until they get sucked into the gravity well of some other planet and they land there and guess what they find? They find rocks that they like to eat. <laughs> <laughs> and so they pop like, This is cool. Yeah. They're like, Hey, this is dope. This is just like back home. That's, that's panspermia. And, and I think that. You know, it's unlikely for them to survive the super long trip between star systems, but I don't think that it's impossible. Back in 2017, we actually had an extrasolar visitor, the first confirmed one that we know of. The name of this extrasolar visitor was Oumuamua. So this was a very large asteroid that was tumbling through our solar system at very high speeds. And it's the first one that we know for sure came from outside our solar system based on the angle uh, based on the speed, based on everything else we know about things that go on in our solar system, didn't come from here. It came from some other star system. Or it might have came from a rogue planet that got flung out of its own solar system. Or maybe it came from a comet. We don't know where it came from because as quick as it was here, it was gone. Wow. Which really bummed me out, actually, that we couldn't get a satellite out there to check it out, a probe to land on it, maybe. But it was just going so fast, we did not have a chance. That 
you know, came from another star system. We know that it did. We know that it came from somewhere else besides our solar system, I should say. And we have these organisms here on Earth that move so slowly and reproduce so slowly. It's not impossible that, you know, they could have been on a rock like that and gotten to our solar system and landed on one of our planets. And so, yeah. It's just wild because, like, I guess I don't really know how to say this. I'm probably going to, like, flub my way through it. But, like... Just like the the organisms that were found in Canada and then the, you know, Bill Clinton's yeah. rock that was found and all this stuff. It's like, how many places are there on Earth that are just remote, this one piece of something that could provide so much insight into other forms of life or whatever that just haven't been found yet? Or that people could walk right by and never know that that holds like a key to something much bigger than just a rock on a ground yeah. in the middle of nowhere. You're totally right. There's um, there's a number of organisms on Earth, actually, that we have a hard time placing in our own evolutionary history. And uh, when we initially discovered Archaea, which is one of the kingdoms of life, um, so you got bacteria, you've got Archaea, and you've got Eukaryota. Um, and there's actually another one that's proposed that hasn't been finalized yet. But when you look at where things split off, uh, eukaryotes and archaea are more closely related than eukaryotes and bacteria or archaea and bacteria, right? That's all cool and good. That was billions of years ago that that happened, but we share features between the different kingdoms. There are certain organisms that we haven't quite placed yet, that we don't exactly know where they fit into. That's nuts. <laughs> now, yeah. we need more information, maybe, and we'll find out that they fit into one of these three kingdoms, or maybe we make a new kingdom. But... We have a lot of evidence here on Earth that, like, there is such wildly different forms of life that we are not necessarily sure that they actually came from here. Now, most of them, they do share some features, which you can explain in a number of different ways, right? Bacteria can share DNA between each other in a non-productive fashion. They're not reproducing necessarily, but they're sharing DNA and what's like a horizontal transfer. And so you can think of ways that, like, as long as everybody has DNA, it's all Gucci. But what about the things that don't use DNA? We don't find them because we can't analyze their genome because they don't have DNA. And so we may see things and go, oh, we tried to do, you know, a genetic analysis on the sample, but, you know, it just it just ended up as junk or whatever. Maybe that's because they don't have DNA. Maybe they use some different form of, you know, information transfer from generation to generation. So, no, you're 100% you're right. We don't know. And it could be all over this planet, barely surviving or maybe even thriving in some circumstances, but we haven't seen it yet. And it's hard to figure out what it is because we're looking for DNA <laughs> or right. RNA. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, it seems like there's this, like, really big hump to get over to get, like, the basic parts required for life. But once it starts, I mean, it just takes off like crazy and it occupies every facet of an environment. Our planet, for sure, but I think also other planets. And so I want to really quickly talk about the, the search for potentially habitable planets that are not our own using telescopes. In that vein, I would like to pour one out for the Arecibo telescope. I know. Yeah. It's very sad. Let's go ahead and pour one out for Arecibo. That was the very, very, very large telescope uh, nestled in a depression in um, Puerto Rico. It's been a really, really great asset to science over these years, and it's a super bummer that it had this catastrophic failure. So... It has actually been used to listen to other planets to see if they had artificially generated radio, which is just like, yeah, why not? Let's just listen to it for, you know, an hour or so 
And we'll go over that data over the next few years and see if there's anything interesting coming from that planet. So we did this mostly on close planets, but we have other telescopes that are looking for planets way far away. And some of them are being used to look for habitable life. Um, so Kepler is a space-based telescope on you know, a satellite. It's actually been used to find over 2,300 exoplanets, Damn. not all of which are habitable. But we're starting to get a good survey on what the ratio is between habitable and non-habitable. I think that that's a really great telescope that has just found planet after planet after planet. And so, and some of them could be perfectly suited to life. It's just very different from ours, right? We talked about silicone, you know, being a different kind of backbone instead of carbon. And so, yeah, really, really cool telescope. Uh, TESS is even cooler. TESS is a space telescope. It's projected to find over 3,000 new exoplanets just in its first experiment, which is scheduled to wrap up soon. Uh, and it does experiments on a two-year time schedule. So it's going to be finding a lot of different things, and it's surveying a bunch of different regions. So it's finding them not just in our galaxy, but all over the wider universe as far as, well, as far as we can see <laughs> in the wider universe and still detect uh, different planets, it's looking all over the joint. Lastly, the James Webb Telescope. Uh, and this is a really cool telescope. It's absolutely massive. It's designed specifically to analyze the atmospheres of exoplanets. And the point is to better understand the chemistry of exoplanets, but it's going to give us a much better idea of what chemistry looks like in the wider universe, uh, which is very important to figuring out what life might look like, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. That's where we're at today. From Venus to Mars to the moons of Jupiter, we're finding the possibility of life all over our own solar system, and we're finding extremely weird extremophiles on our own planet. As we look further into the universe than we ever have before, we're finding the building blocks to life. Uh, we're finding potential metabolites. Um, I barely scratched the surface, but this field is incredibly interesting, and I would not be surprised at the announcement of life found outside of Earth, but in our own solar system within the next 20 years. So what, as kind of a, a, a big science guy and a, a fan of space, what would excite you the most like what discovery do you hope you're alive to witness um i'm a biochemist so it's going to be life i mean even if it's the smallest thing on our like just anything that uh has a information system that it carries from generation to generation that has offspring that metabolizes energy in its environment i don't care if it's the boringest microbe on the planet if we find that on another planet i mean i'm over the moon on that i really am I have a very high confidence that we're going to find life elsewhere. I have a pretty high confidence, maybe 70%, that there is intelligent life elsewhere. We just haven't found it yet. But the first step is finding anything else in our solar system. And there are a lot of spots in our solar system where we're going to find it. I'm pretty sure. Hmm. And so when we do, that's, that's going to be a very good day for me. My wife is going to tell me to shut up a lot. <laughs> and well, <laughs> and, you, and you too, probably, actually. <laughs> No. Get it. Oh, okay. There's a book no. somewhere else on the planet. Cool. <laughs> oh, okay, Rich, I get up. <laughs> the the kind of visuals that we have of aliens, just from movies and TV and all that shit. Like, how likely do you think it is that we would have contact with another form of life, like legit aliens dropping? Right. In our own solar system, I would say. I would peg that at around 20%. So not super great. The reason being is that here on Earth, eukaryotes, uh, which um, this is where we find all multicellular organisms is in eukaryotes, right? 
that was a big, big jump. And here on Earth, we had the perfect circumstances to make that happen. So on Europa or Mars or Venus, you're probably not going to get those conditions that lend super well to a longer reproductive cycle and this special specialization that we have in eukaryotes, right? Because eukaryotes, you know, comprise fungi, comprise animals, comprise, well, insects or animals, uh, insects and reptiles and mammals. You know, it's just that kind of specialization is really hard to get in these very extreme environments. You tend to see these endoliths, uh, right? Or these rock eaters that are very small. They don't have multicellular life, but they're, they're chugging along. So in our own solar system, probably not high. And getting to other star systems takes a very long time. So I'm very much uh, into transhumanism where I would be genetically modified to outlive you know, cancers and heart disease and all that BS. Mm -hmm. um, and I would love to go visit another star system, another planet even, um, given that I had enough time. So, you know, traveling there is definitely possible in our lifetime, probably not going to happen. So that's where I'm at with, you know, more complex life. So do you think things like Area 51 and shit, like, do you think there are like tubes of aliens like, do you believe that there's... <laughs> yeah, you can see the look on my face. Uh, the listeners can't. I would love for that to be the case. I don't think that it is. Okay. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence that's just like, oh, this weird thing happened. And, you know, maybe it was aliens. You know, we got... Uh, we, we moved from vacuum tubes to transistors, you know, after Area 51 or whatever. Cool, fine. We also did a lot of other cool stuff uh, around that time and before Area 51, that would have nothing to do with aliens and led to this explosion in science. I would love for it to be the case that we've got these aliens that are just popping by to hang out a little bit and chit chat, but probably not. And I say that as a huge X-Files fan. <laughs> right. So I just, I just was curious because I was like a scientist and someone who loves space and stuff. Like whenever you hear about UFOs and stuff, if you're like, yeah, I definitely are like, mm, it's probably bullshit. It's probably bullshit. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, they, the presence of UFOs increased a lot when um, personal camcorders became a thing. Sure. And if you've ever watched a video from personal camcorders from those days, they're pretty crappy. So mm -hmm. <laughs> pretty much all of them can be explained by really crappy cameras at the time and a lot more people having crappy cameras. And you'll notice that as cameras got better and better that we stick in our pockets, the prevalence of UFOs has actually gone down. So, right. Yeah. Just, just curious. Uh, I know you're not a sci-fi person, but do you have favorite aliens from movies? Mine are generally the more, like, silly, furry, goofy ones. <laughs> of course, Alf. Yeah. Yeah. But also, like, you know, Men in Black, like, the weird, mm -hmm. like, kind of goofy. Not the, like, stereotypical, like, oval head with the one big, you know, like, those creep me the fuck out. Yeah. So if it's gremlin-y type gizmo cute little things yeah. i'm on board with that yeah. but... as long as you can't feed it after midnight you're good yeah so i'd say alf would be my yeah. <laughs> my favorite alien uh have you seen the movie alien or aliens yes it's been a long damn time yeah it's it's one of my family movies so i i started watching it at like uh, probably five years old gotcha. absolutely love it the xenomorph is what it's called did you ever see the movie uh life i don't think so so, uh -uh. there was a really interesting one, uh, ended up being called Calvin. I have some caveats to that because like biochemically Calvin probably couldn't exist, but, uh, it was a really interesting, different take on alien life because it started out as a very, very small multicellular organism. 
and grew very rapidly because it's an extremophile. It was able to like uh, survive these very extreme things that it was put through and evolved, not evolved in a like a you know generation to generation, but just like became scarier and scarier and scarier, you know, each iteration. So it's super cool. So you had mentioned on uh, tidbits about uh, eating some human steak. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, if alien came down tomorrow, how would you feel about eating them? Not great. <laughs> I mean, there would be a lot going on in my brain. A lot of feelings. Probably first thing would be like, I'm going to eat that son of a bitch. <laughs> it's tasty. <laughs> uh, so in terms of health wise, I probably wouldn't eat an alien unless I biochemically knew what it was made up of. Because there's a really good chance I would not be able to digest it. Hmm. Secondarily, it would have to be consensual, right? That, like, they would have to be like, oh, yeah, 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 let me just cut off, you know, a flank steak here. <laughs> it's cool. Like, it's all it's good. Cool. It's all good. Yeah. yeah, yeah, throw it on the smoker. <laughs> it's all good. Um, if that was cool, then, yeah, I would totally do it. But even here on Earth, like, there are things that we can't digest. So cellulose, for example, or fiber. Um, you know, that's something that eukaryotes, as far as we know, none of them have a gene to digest it. Or, like, cows and, like, llamas and stuff. When they digest cellulose, they're actually using bacteria in their guts. Termites do this, too, when they eat wood. They're using bacteria in their guts to digest it. And cellulose is just glucose in a chain, but it's connected in a way that our enzymes can't break it. So we get our bacteria buddies to digest it for us, and then we get that sweet, sweet sugar <laughs> right. out of that cellulose. Mm. <laughs> it, it yeah, is we do. literally a carbohydrate. We just can't digest it. And so if an alien came down and was like, hey, hey, Here's a flank steak. Here's a KC strip. Yeah, we got that on our whole planet, too. I'd be like, all right, but I need to figure out if I can actually digest that. <laughs> then I probably would because, you know. Why not? So we wanted to talk about a really quick update regarding a previous episode that we did. Um, on episode nine, we talked about scientific advancements and how they relate to medicine. And you talked about genetically modified mosquitoes and how they're being used to help eliminate diseases that they carry. And you wanted to share a really cool advancement with those mosquitoes, right? Okay. So another large study using genetically modified mosquitoes has been done in Florida. Um, or it's starting, rather. Um, we had talked about genetically modifying mosquitoes to reduce their population. Mm -hmm. The new study being done is to eliminate mosquitoes that carry Zika, dengue, and yellow fever. Previous studies that have been done with this GMO mosquito have shown a reduction in the population of mosquitoes by around 80%. But it's not clear how long this reduction lasts. So other places that we've released these mosquitoes... Uh, include Brazil, Grand Cayman, Malaysia, and Panama. This looks like it's going to be the largest study so far, so I'm interested to see how effective it's going to be. And just as a side note, these are only male mosquitoes that are being genetically modified, and male mosquitoes cannot bite humans. Uh, so their only purpose is to result in infertile offspring with the wild-type females. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So, you know, just recent update, I said this stuff is all happening right now, and it's yeah. long. That's cool. Yeah. So if you haven't already listened to it, go back and listen to episode number nine about the scientific advancements. It was really cool. 
and had one more follow-up thing that I wanted to do. Um, so I got a message from a friend of mine who had listened to the LSD episode that we did, which was episode number 20, if you want to check that out. Um, and he was asking about your thoughts on LSD flashbacks. That was one thing that we didn't touch on in the episode and just wanted to see if you had any information regarding what's referred to as LSD flashbacks. Yes. So um, I uh, did some research on this and it was it was a lot different than I was expecting, honestly. Mm. So LSD flashback, the official name for this is hallucinogen persisting perception disorder. Okay. So let me break that down for a second. What it basically means is hallucinogen induced and there is a persisting disorder in their perception. Okay. So you take a hallucinogen or a psychotropic of some sort um, and it causes a longer term difference in the way that you perceive the world. Basically, all the research that I did on this, there was a number of case studies. There was a couple of uh, larger scale uh, meta analyses, which basically look at a bunch of different studies. Basically, what they determined was there's this set of criteria in which when you have HPPD, hallucinogen persistent uh, perceptive disorder or perception disorder, basically what happens is after you've taken the drug, you've come down off the drug, sometime after that, you will experience similar symptoms to what you are feeling on the drug, i.e. visual hallucinations or occasionally auditory hallucinations. In pretty much all the research that I did, the maximal perceptual differences came in the form of light trails, fractals, or intense colors. Meaning, okay, you feel a little bit high for a, for a little while, but that's about it. Um, and it's not really known how common this is. Recent research indicates that this is uncommon. Major study that I um, this is data obtained from the U.S. National Survey on Drug Use and Health, and this was from 2008 to 2012. This was used to estimate the effect of hallucinogens on adverse mental outcomes and psychedelics, um, and they found that they were not associated with mental health, with adverse mental health outcomes. This doesn't mean that bad things don't happen when people take LSD or that they don't make mistakes. They do. But it looks like the long-term effects of it seem to be non-differentiable between having used LSD and not. So some people will experience HPPD, which is a slight visual hallucination, um, and that will go away. But most people don't have any experience. And so that brings us back to the question, so what would an LSD flashback be? And so I went into, my wife has a DSM, uh, Diagnostic Statistical Manual. So it clarifies that diagnosis of HPPD does not include psychosis i.e. the person experiencing HPPD has a grip on reality and they understand that what is going on is not quite right. And so if people are experiencing psychosis, they actually specify like, okay, this is something different that we need to look into. And I think part of that is that it's, we don't have a lot of good data on it, right? We can do surveys and ask people if they've experienced it, but we can't put them in a lab and, and, and see what's happening when it's going on. And so I think that that's the biggest problem with actually getting info on this. So flashbacks do happen, but we're hard to find much evidence that LSD flashbacks cause psychotic breaks. They might happen or they might be correlated with an underlying mental disorder. We, we seriously don't know. And I wish that I did have more and better studies to go along with that. I do want to know psychosis can be caused by other drugs. So while going through some of this data, I kept finding similar papers talking about 
uh, amphetamine withdrawals. And the reason why this kind of stuck out was between the 40s and 60s, the U.S. went through its first uh, amphetamine epidemic, which was not great. <laughs> so during this time, amphetamines were being prescribed for depression, weight loss, and just as, quote, pep pills, unquote. I have a severe issue with that, but cool. Um, <laughs> that seems like a not great thing to prescribe amphetamines for. Right. We're prescribing them for people to get work done, which, while very different, people are prescribed that for dealing with ADHD, right? And so, like, while I'm being somewhat judgy, it was kind of the first wave of, like, okay, some people do need help with this. And so I get it. So by 1962, the U.S. was making enough amphetamines to get 43 doses to every single person in the U.S. per year. Holy shit. That's a lot of fucking meth. <laughs> wow. It's not really all meth. That's fine. I'm making a joke there. And not every person was actually using it. But that is a lot of amphetamines to be prescribing to people. Um, so what ended up happening was they found that some people longer term on these various amphetamines started experiencing paranoid ideations, delusions, and psychosis. When you couple this with some of the more recent research on HPPD, it kind of looks like some of the quote-unquote acid casualties from the 60s may be better ascribed to more commonly prescribed amphetamines, uh, which was going on at the time, or in some cases, unfortunately, misdiagnosed schizophrenia. And we don't have a time machine. We can't go back and actually figure that out. I really wish we could because, you know, a lot of people had their lives fucking ruined because of bad prescribing practice because we didn't know what was going on. Should people have been on LSD regularly? Probably not. <laughs> you know, it's it's a hard drug, you know. We don't have a good idea of what actually caused some of these, you know, psychotic breaks. And, and I mean that not in a derogatory sense. I mean that in the medical sense, you know, psychosis, where you start to lose your grip on reality and things, you know, you're starting to see things that don't make sense, but you think that they're real. That's what I mean by psychotic break. We don't know right. because, man, some stuff was being passed out like candy back then. Mm -hmm. I do want to say there is some good data, however, for people who do get off of amphetamines, that it looks like... After you overcome your amphetamine addiction, you will eventually not have these issues anymore. And so it looks like amphetamine withdrawal and recovery from amphetamine addiction, you do get over these eventually. And and it's not a super long period of time either. It's a couple of months. And so for anybody out there that's struggling with that, there is a light at the end of that tunnel. All right. Thank you for doing another one of these with me. I love talking about nerd shit, dude. Rich, thank you for another episode of Getting Rich on Science. You make me smarter every time we talk, and I love it. Um, thank you guys so much for listening. I appreciate it so much. And if you want to support the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Those are how we get new listeners and are going to be able to keep doing the show. If you haven't already liked the Facebook page, please go to Know What I Heard Podcast. Like us there and follow us on Instagram as well. If you have any questions, comments, show ideas, anything at all, send me an email at knowwhatiheard at gmail.com. And um, I guess until next time, hey, know what I heard? <laughs> <laughs>